Welcome to the Freedom Fridays podcast with me, your host, Pete Clark, the Whispers Guy. Work seems to expand to the time that we give it. And I've been investing my time, occasionally on a Friday, to explore how we use our time, our energy, our attention, and the impact it has on our identity. I've been exploring over season one some of the mindset shifts in the handcuffs of I have to, to the freedom of I choose to. And I've shared some conversations, some tips, some tools about how you might want to invest your own time, your own energy, your own attention, how you might want to, if you choose to, make some changes to your identity, how you might have freedom from I have to and design a life around I choose to. If that's of interest to you, then this is the podcast for you. In season two, I'm going to be exploring some experts and asking them what freedom means for them and trying to help people work to live and not live to work. Trying to help people add life to their years and not just years to their life. So let's dive on in and here's season two. Welcome to this week's edition of the Freedom Fridays podcast. I have a guest today who is um, on the next page to me, as in he's already an established author. He is an established podcast host and has interviewed some of the people I would love to chat to. He is a keynote speaker, and I've just found out he is an executive coach. So welcome to Shane Hatton. Hey, Shane. Thank you so much. That's a very, very kind introduction. (laughs) Well, look, mate, it's all about perception and you're doing some great stuff out there. So I feel it's it's a pleasure and a, and a privilege to be hosting you in this conversation. Thank you. Um, Shane, I start with the same question, uh, although I've changed it for season two. And because of the work that you do, the expertise in the field that you play, in that work, what does freedom mean? See, a lot of people, their opening podcast question is like, where did you grow up? Or, you know, <laughs> what was your first job? I mean, the, the first question I ask in my podcast is where were you born? What was your first job? And what do you do now? I feel like you take it and we bypass the small talk, which I really love. And we actually get to some some really meaningful conversation right from the get go. And so thank you. Thank you for that. Cool. Um, it's such a big question. Mm. And my instinctive response when I hear the word freedom and what does freedom look, look like and play out like in my context is to instinctively imagine a life or business or, you know, practice where rules um, don't exist. Like my, my immediate thought is to go, okay, where do I go to where the rules don't exist? And I can just throw out the rule book to some things. And I go, how much more freedom would I have if I did, if I, if I could just do that. But then I immediately catch myself in that thought that, okay, what would it actually look like if I got to throw out, the rule book that I operate to and play to. Yeah. And actually I don't even think I like that either. And so I, <laughs> I hear, I hear that question and I get caught in this immediate tension and the attention is between is freedom life without rules or is, do I get more freedom in my life with rules? And I think the answer is yes. <laughs> Cause in my mind, I, I can see the benefit of both. And yeah. so that's my, that's the first thing that comes to mind when you, when you ask that question. Cool. Well, let's get into that in a second. Let, let me rephrase the question then with the, with the people that you work with, 
um, in the help that you try and give them and the support that you're trying to help them, you know, see beyond themselves, what do you feel that they are uh, tied to that you're trying to help them get freedom from? Mm, yeah, even, even great, great, great question. I think, again, it's probably a very similar answer. It is, is a set of rules that a person has been living by their entire life yep. that they either are unconsciously um, living out or playing to or consciously aware of those rules, but not really sure about how they can disconnect from that set of rules that they play to. So I think a lot of the conversations I have with people um, are helping them raise their awareness of this internal rule book that they're playing to in their life. And I, I go back and I think to when I first started my business, um, uh, someone said to me, they gave me probably one of the best pieces of advice. They said, figure out what game you're playing. And then when you figure out what game you're playing, you'll know what rules to play to. And when you know what rules to play to, it'll stop you from taking on really well-meaning, but bad advice. And that was such a helpful piece of insight for me. And so it's allowed me to become more aware of the rules that I'm playing to. So that it actually helps me to play the game that I'm playing a whole lot better. Um, no, I think I understand what you mean. But can I just check maybe for the listeners, yeah. what, what do you mean by the game that you're playing? I'm assuming you don't mean Monopoly. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a very competitive board game person. And so um, I could I could mean Monopoly in one sense. Uh, I, I think the game that I'm playing could be a whole lot of different spheres of life. For me, it could be the business game that I'm playing. Like it could be how am I um, running my business? Um, as a, a solo entrepreneur, um, I play to a set of rules and that is a, that's the game that I play as opposed to someone who's potentially building a large business that they're scaling. Uh, it could mean the game that I play in terms of my own personal life and where I I feel like I'm supposed to be. Uh, yeah. Is it the, you know, married with two kids with a white picket fence? Like, is that the game that I'm playing, uh, the game of life? Um, it could be the friendship game. Like, what kind of friendships do I want to have around me in my life? There's a whole bunch of these different games. And so they potentially all have very different set of rules that come with it. Yeah. One of the best and simplest descriptions I've heard that defines this was, and I think we may both have been involved in these sort of groups over the last few years. It was a chap who was selling boats. Uh, you may even know the story. He was selling boats and he went through a community experience where he recognized that the game he was in was not selling boats. The game he was in was connecting families. He did it through selling boats. And I wonder if that was what you meant, as in, you do these podcasts and trainings and you coach people and yet the game I'm playing is something different and bigger perhaps. Mm. Yeah. Yep. I mean, there is, there is a bigger game attached to a lot of the, the work that um, I mean, for me personally, but also the people that I work with, you know, I, I work with a lot of people who are in corporate jobs and roles. And um, a lot of those people tend to be in human resources um, and they're people who get into that role because they're attracted to helping people and, you know, making a difference. And I remember having conversations with people really early on. And a lot of the work that I was doing is, was helping people to, I guess, have more influence um, in their workplace or in their role. And I started talking to people and I realized that when I said the word influence, they almost shrunk back a little bit when I said that word. And when I kind of started to dig a little bit below the surface, People told me, they're going, you know what? I actually don't really care about influence. What I really want is I want to make an impact. I want to make a difference. 
And they were in that space because they got in because they wanted to help people. And then over time get pulled into the transactional nature of their work and they get pulled out of the bigger game that they want to be playing. So yeah, I think to some extent, we all have the game that we're playing, which is right in front of us and also the bigger game that we would like to be playing uh, Mm. somewhere along the line. Mm. Um, I'm going to go back to something you said earlier, Shane, if you don't mind, you, you talked about the leaders and the clients and the customers that you work with trying to help them with their awareness of some of the rules that they live by consciously and unconsciously. I'd be interested in if you've got any insights about the leaders that you speak to, what are some of the common rules that they live by unconsciously? And it's a two-pronged question, um, which are often helpful, but what are the ones that are least helpful? Mm. Great question. I mean, when, when I think about rules, and I probably should ex- elaborate on that a little bit more for people who are listening, I, I, I imagine that sitting inside of me is this little rule book that I've written over time that I carry around. And yep. uh, my my background early on was in in kind of counseling. And we, we talk about these sort of expectations. So they're expectations of self, expectations of others, and expectations of the world in general. And those expectations are about the way that we prefer things to be. And it could be the way that we were raised. It could be based on our experiences. So a really common one is we say, well, I expect um, in my life that people would be kind and it's an expectation of others and it's an expectation of the world. And then when you dig below the surface of that and you ask someone, so where is that rule that says that people in the world should be kind? Where is that written? Where, where is it kind of point to that rule that exists? And nobody can. Now, the world's a whole lot better and it's a whole lot nicer when people are kind, but it's actually not a rule. But based on our upbringing, what we were taught, you know, we were always told to use our manners and to be nice to people and be kind. And so we put that book in uh, that rule into the rule book and we carry that around. And we do that in all kinds of areas of our life. And then what ends up happening is one day we show up into work and or we show up into a leadership position and we start to assess everybody else on our team or in our organization in our world based on the rule book that we've written in our entire life. And we realize that other people have very different sets of rules that they play to. And so there's this immediate conflict and it's like, well, who's right and who's wrong? And that's actually, it's not the, not the right question because we actually both just carry a different set of rules. But we then need to start to adapt to how do we, we now collectively uh, work together in a way that's helpful and productive. And so, I mean, if you think about, if we go to the question of like, what are some of the unconscious rules that are unhelpful to us? Think about an experience you had with maybe your first leader or your first manager that was maybe a really positive experience or potentially a really negative experience. What do you take out of that? And how does that shape the rules and the way that you show up as a leader down the track? So someone might have someone who was a very hands-on leader, meaning that they wanted to be in the detail of everything. They wanted to be, you know, uh, really kind of, Uh, yeah, almost to the extent of micromanaging and you go, okay, this is the way that leaders are supposed to operate. And now when I'm in the position of leadership myself, now what I do is I I jump into the detail and I get hands-on with everything. And I realize that the person that I'm working with wants more autonomy and wants a little bit more distance between me and that person. And it can create that that initial conflict that exists because they go, well, that's just the way that I've always done things. Um, so it could exist across a whole bunch of different areas. It could be around how much autonomy do you give somebody? It could be around uh, what's the way that we collaborate or work on this team? Should I be um, friendly with the person on my team or should I keep it strictly professional? Should I ask about a person's weekend or should I just keep it 
entirely focus on work. There are literally a thousand different rules that we show up with every day. And we don't know that those rules are not upheld by everybody until we have a conversation and we realize, hey, they've got a different rule book to the one that I'm operating to. Mm. It reminds me of the, <clears throat> the maxim that fish don't see water. Yeah. And so we swim around in our lives and we don't really see it because we're in it. Therefore, not even aware of the rules that were existing. But until someone else's rules that are perhaps the opposite bump up against ours and it, ooh, that didn't feel good, right? That felt bad. <laughs> and it's only till that happens we realize we're immersed in our own rule making, if you like. Yeah, it's really true. I, I share an experience. I've, I've just written a, a new book that's all around culture, which is part of this kind of conversation around the internal rules and expectations that we have of each other. And it, it's, it's that exact metaphor, which is we're consistently immersed in water or we're consistently immersed in culture almost our entire life and career. And then someone says, hey, can you try and make sense of what it is or what water is? Or, and you go, oh my gosh, I didn't know. I'd never even known it existed until now you've pointed it out to me. Um, it's a bit like when you're having lunch with someone and you recognize they have food in their teeth. Once you see it, it's really hard to unsee it again. You can't unsee it. <laughs> yeah. And based on your experience, Shane, are there common rules that leaders tend to operate? You know, the good ones and the not so good ones? Are there kind of common ones that show up? Yeah, I mean, that comes back to a, a question around like what we, would we consider helpful or unhelpful mm. rules in our life that we carry. And the challenge about that is that it can be really hard to define what is helpful and what's not because mm. it changes from context to context. And I think about, you know, imagine some organizations where they're on call 24 seven, you think of a paramedic or you think of a doctor or you think of a shift worker, you think of these people who are just consistently on call. And so for them to get a phone call on Saturday morning at 8am isn't surprising to them and they signed up for it and they're actually okay with it. It's completely normal and healthy. Now think about another organization that if you got a phone call at 8am on a Saturday morning, it would be just totally out of character for that business. And you would go, that's so unhealthy. My manager doesn't let me take my weekends. It's kind of the same thing, but in very different contexts. So what is healthy in one context is actually really toxic within another. Mm. So I find it really challenging to try and say like, what are the healthy and helpful rules that we play to? And what are the really unhealthy and unhelpful ones? Mm. Now, I think there are some bigger maybe moral questions that we could, you know, look at and, and, you know, much bigger kind of general rules that we could look at. But I think in terms of the specifics, it, it's, it's so different based on your context and your environment. Mm. It reminds me of the story. I think it's a story. I don't even know if it's true. Um, and it doesn't really matter because I think it makes a great point. You, you probably heard it. The, the two brothers who are interviewed about their father, who's on death row, and the no, two brothers are interviewed about the death penalty. What do you think? You know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then they're both asked the same question at the end of the interview. How did you turn out like you have? And one brother was in jail himself. The other brother, you know, we'd argue as a pillar in society, you know, married kids, your typical 2.2 kids in white picket fence. How did you turn out like you have? And they both gave the same answer. But what do you expect with a dad like mine? Now, what, what causes one to go one way and one to go the other? Who knows, right? Yeah. So, wow, you know, even to your, your point around my first leader, you know, who was, you know, authoritarian or laissez-faire, well, what do you expect with my first leader being like that? Now, what yeah. causes us to go one way or the other? 
I, I'm my personal view is I'm happy for that to be a bit of a mystery. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I don't I really want to know. Years ago, that was that was called the crucibles of leadership, and it was talking about those really you know toxic, unhelpful, and unhealthy leadership experiences that you've had are often teaching you really valuable lessons for the future as they refine you and help you become a better leader. And so mm. you've got some people who are in leadership going, why are you such a great leader? And they say, well, I, I had this great role model when I was yeah. in starting out in leadership. And you ask another person, why are you such a great leader? And they go, because I had a really terrible leader as a first thing. Yeah. I never wanted to be anything like that person. Yeah. So Shane, I'm, I'm, Conscious, you said you, you've written, just written and about to be published a book on culture. I'd love to dive into that for a second because it's one of the, the topics that I think everyone knows about, but no one really knows about. Everyone uses the word and often uh, I'd say blames culture on the results, our retention strategy on people leaving, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not sure often whether they know what they mean by it and whether culture is the culprit or not. So let me start with, see if you can help illuminate for the listeners. What is, in your view, culture? And that is the million dollar question, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> that is why I wrote a book called Let's Talk Culture because I've been wrestling with the same thing. Funny enough, you, you mentioned the story about the goldfish before. It's the opening story in the book. Um, it was a, a commencement speech by David Foster Wallace and it's the story of the two goldfish who are swimming through the water and the other one, you know, passes by and says, morning boys, how's the water? They swim on for a little bit and one looks at the other one and says, what the hell is water? Yeah. Um, and it's that whole dilemma of where we're often told culture is this um, competitive advantage. It's the thing that attracts all the really great people to your organization. It keeps them involved. And everywhere I go, I ask the exact same question. What is culture? And I'm, I'm, I'm actually perplexed with how many different responses I get from that. Yeah. So last year, um, I ran a research project here in Australia, and we, we asked a 1,000 Australian managers to give us their best definition of culture. We actually asked them two questions. The first question was, do you know how to define organizational and team culture? And the response was 97% said, yes, we know how to define organizational culture. Um, which was quite surprising. Um, yes. Obviously, very uh, a self-inflated uh, perspective. Yeah. Yep. So naturally, the follow-up question was that to that was, well, give us your definition of organizational and team culture. And less than one in ten could actually give us a good definition of what culture was, or a sort of consistent definition of what culture was. Mm. Um, most people described the outcomes of culture. So they talked about, you know, they said things like our organization is inclusive or it's flexible or our, you know, our culture, um, it, it's the vibe of our place. It's, you know, people get along and they collaborate well. And then there was this kind of smaller group of people and they said culture is essentially the, the values, the beliefs and the expectations that guide and inform our decisions. It was this kind of really, this very well-crafted definition. And as I was looking through the results, I was working with McCrindle, who the research partner on this, and I was going through their kind of um, raw data. And I saw this definition show up. It was always the same. It was maybe half of it or a full version of it, like maybe a few kind of key words from it. And I thought to myself, if I was a manager and I was asked to define culture and I said I could do it, and then the next question I was called out for not being able to do it, what would be my natural response? And so I thought to myself, I'll just quickly define organizational culture into Google. So I open Google, I type define organizational culture. And the first thing that came up at the top of the search results was this word for word, the definition wow. that this one in 10 people had given us. And so it, 
really taught me a lot that even though we talk a lot about culture, very, very few people actually really understand what culture is, which is a mm. big challenge. Mm. So, you know, my next question. <laughs> exactly. exactly right. <laughs> well, what that definition did one in 10 give it? Yeah. Look, the, the answer to the definition question around culture is what's the definition of culture? They say, you know, the most simplest form is the culture is the way that we do things around here. Yeah. And the answer to that is yes. Now, other people would argue that with that and they would say, well, no, culture is made up of the systems and the practices and the norms and yeah. the beliefs and the expectations. And the answer to that question is yes, it is also all of those things. And so nobody's wrong in the definition of culture. I think I often think about it like um, it's like wine tasting. People would say, you know, when you go wine tasting, they go, well, how do you describe wine? And, you know, most people would say it's good or bad. But if you ask like a real wine connoisseur, they would taste it and they would say it has these notes or it has these, you know, these flavors. And there's a whole profile that sits below it. And they're both right. The person who says the wine's good and the person who says the wine's bad is, is just as right as the person who says this wine has a floral note of this and a hint of that, but they're just very different perspectives on it. And so when I looked into the, the research around culture um, between kind of like the late eight, uh, late 60s and the early 90s, when culture was like really coming to be, there was 54 different academic definitions of culture. 54. And Brilliant. thankfully, someone had already pulled them together. And what I did is I looked at it and go, okay, what do all of these definitions have in common? And they had four really common characteristics. The first one is that every definition talked about culture as being something that's collective, meaning that culture doesn't exist in isolation. So it's not that you have a culture, Pete, and I have a culture, it's we have a culture together. So when teams are operating together, it has to have that collective element. So it said definitions had things like norms or members or organizations or assumptions or some kind of group collaborative nature to it. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that um, culture, all the definitions of culture had some kind of unseen element to it. So it was an intangible thing that people describe. So people describe as the vibe of the place, or, you know, they talk about the energy or the spirit or the soul, all those different things. But there were words like values and beliefs and understandings and meanings. Now, how do you point to somebody's beliefs? How do you point to somebody's values? You, you, you can't, but yet it's such an integral role and element of culture. So there's an unseen element to it. Um, the third was that there's an actual visible element to culture or there's a seen element an observable element and what i mean by that is you can point to behaviors in our organization that are a representation of our culture so you can point to behaviors or systems or rituals and patterns and that can kind of make up an element of our culture so there has to be something that you can see and observe uh, and the last thing that had it had in common was that there was um, there was a social learning element to culture um, which is that culture was learned and it was dynamic, which means that people could come in and could go out and it could change or it could stay the same, you know, but it was always a kind of evolving in some way. So that those kind of four things that it was collective, it had a seen and an unseen element and that it was a social learning element kind of led me to talk about culture is that culture is what we, when we look around the people around us on our team and we look at what we can see, and we interpret what we can't see. So we look at the way a person's behaving and we use that behavior to interpret the unspoken beliefs or values of that team. And we use that information to learn and adapt so that we can essentially fit in and belong on that team. So it's not a definition, but I think it helps us to see a bit more of the breadth and depth of culture. I think that's really helpful, Shane. It's, it's practical. It's 
it's kind of given this intangible thing called culture a little bit of tangibility without being struck and caged by rules. <laughs> yeah. And yet here yeah. are some rules because people like a little bit of certainty, but not too much, it would appear. Um, yeah. One of the rules that you hear in culture conversations is, oh, it takes a long time to change culture. True or false? Ooh. True and false. Because <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, I would typically say, yeah, culture can take a long time to change. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, I was having a conversation in the interview of the book with a, a guy by the name of Dan Motow, and he talked about this idea of organizational memory. And, you know, I, I, I think about it like memory foam. Culture can be so hard to change because the new culture is always competing against your organizational memory. So it depends on the, who the people are who are listening to this. It could just be a household. It could be a business owner. It could be a you know, person working in a corporate environment. Everything that you want to do that's new is trying to compete with the memory of the old. And so you will always be kind of pushing and pulling to try and get it to unstick or, you know, to kind of reshape from the way it was. So it can take a long time. So people often don't give culture change enough time for it mm. to actually fully embed. And it's always, you think about it, if you've had 20 years embedding a culture, you're not going to change it in six months. Mm. However, is <laughs> the end. if we go back to 2001 and look at what happened with the atrocities of September 11 and look at airline travel culture, mm-hmm. how that completely was transformed within a matter of weeks and days even, Look yeah. at the last two years of a pandemic, almost immediately, 20, 30 years of the ways of working has been uprooted and completely changed. And we, we've changed a culture around work. Mm. So I, I get the both end rather than the either or. But yes, generally, it takes, it takes a long time to shift. Mm. And is it your understanding and your expertise that you can have different cultures within the same organization? Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think we do. Um, either... Uh, by default, which is just the fact that we've never done anything intentionally to create culture within our organization. Um, I think, yes, the, it's the yes and. And the yes and is that organizations spend a lot of time trying to create a collective culture. Mm-hmm. And so there is an organization that you might say, hey, I might go and work for Microsoft because they've got a really great flexible culture. And so your awareness of the organization as a collective is that they've got a very flexible culture. And yet you could go and work in a team within, say, any kind of organization and recognize that your your manager is micromanaging you, not letting you work wherever you want, and the culture doesn't feel flexible, even though you might look at the collective and say it actually is a really flexible culture. So there is that kind of macro culture, but more often than not, your experience is defined by your kind of micro culture that sits within that. Can I present a dilemma to you that often I hear some of my clients talk to and when recruiting one of the strongest criteria for recruitment is often culture fit whatever they mean by that and yet they're on this journey to evolve as a culture and so they tend to recruit for current culture not future culture because the person that comes in that's maybe got sharp elbows that's maybe not quite a fit right now, but will be a brilliant fit in the future gets kind of rejected because, oh, well, they weren't a good culture fit. Help resolve that dilemma for them. What would, what should they do? Yeah. Um, I was uh, doing an interview in the book with um, Samir. Uh, 
I, I can't pronounce his last name. I'm going to, I'll send you the details for the show notes for it. Um, who was talking through, they did a research project. He's, he's from um, Berkeley runs the, uh, the culture initiative over there. And they did a, a uh, research project where they essentially analyzed the written communication of over a million kind of uh, pieces of electronic communication. So uh, emails, Slack channels, all of that from within an organization. And what they wanted to do was look at how people adapted to cultural language when they were coming into an organization. And they used that adaptability to determine whether or not a person would get promoted within the organization or whether they would exit the organization. And they could, based on a person's ability to adapt to the way that other people were talking and using the language, they could actually predict whether a person was going to get promoted or leave the organization. It was actually quite remarkable. But it was in the conversation with him where he was talking about how we often hire for what you're saying is this cultural fit. And later on, I hear more people now saying we're hiring for culture ad, which is about what do they bring to our culture? And we're hearing a lot more of that language. But he actually introduced the third option, which was this idea of hiring for cultural adaptability, um, which is can a person grow with your culture? Can a person adapt with your culture? Um, which is actually, I think, a much better way and more helpful way of looking at it because culture is dynamic. It changes. It's not static. It changes from one day to the next. And some people who, like what you've said, come in at the organization when it's in this stage, yes, they might fit the culture for where it is now, but will they be able to adapt and grow with the culture for where it needs to be in the next 12 months or 18 months? Mm. One of the... <clears throat> Uh, for me, simplest and yet profound definitions I've heard to describe culture was it's the lingering effect of every interaction throughout the business. And I thought that was lovely because certainly a lot of the clients I work with, the leaders I work with, don't really fully appreciate every moment is an interaction. And that's having an additive or a subtractive effect on the current or future culture. Mm. I really like that. I, I, just for the sake of the last conversation, it was Samir Stras Srivastava. Okay. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get his name very wrong. Um, <laughs> but he's the associate professor at the Haas Business School at the University of California. Um, what what you're touching on here, which, which I really like, is um, we open this conversation by talking about this kind of internal rule book that we carry around. And, and in my mind, when I, I talk about the internal rule book, it's the really unseen elements of culture. So it's, again, how do I point to your beliefs? How do I point to our values? It's really, really hard to do that. So how do we inter or how do we understand your beliefs and your values and your rules? Well, we understand that based on my interaction with you. And so when I encounter you and you ask me about my weekend, I all of a sudden kind of sit back and go, maybe this person actually cares about me as a person, not just about my role. Or when I have a conversation with a person, I bring up, the, what they got to up to on the weekend, they say, oh, it's none of your business. You know, let's just keep it strictly professional. You get an insight into the unseen elements of that person's beliefs and values and expectations and rules. And so every single interaction that we have with someone in the workplace, outside of the workplace is actually um, demonstrating to other people this unobservable or this invisible intangible element of our culture and the kind of rule book that we're playing to. So yeah, it's, it's really, really important to be aware of that. I read recently that, uh, again, I can't remember the source. Um, in the startup kind of small business world, 
the first 10 employees pretty much set the culture. And the next 500 or so align with it or not. Um, again, question, true or false? Um, and whatever answer you give me, what could we do to shift that if that's the case? Because I often find that the first 10 employees, circa, are the ones that are doing the recruiting. Mm. Yeah, big one. I mean, it, it, you'd see this a lot in the kind of tech startup space because, yeah. you know, essentially they're pulling talented people together and they're building a business based around what is really talent and skill set. And so culture really early on isn't always necessarily at the forefront of conversation because, you know, you've got some people who are typically recruiting friends and they're like, hey, would you come and work for free in, in exchange for, you know, a percentage share in our business? And so culture isn't a big conversation, but yet as, as it starts to scale quickly, culture becomes a very important conversation because all of a sudden they start realizing, hey, we need to get people around here that are going to help um, create an environment where our great people don't want to leave, that they actually want to come and work for us and they also want to stay. Um, so it does become a really important conversation. Um, I would say culture is averages, not aspirations. Um, and what I mean by that is, is culture is a collective norm and it's the way that we will do things collectively. So if you have 70% of your business who are inclusive, you know, um, who are open to feedback and challenging each other and 30% who are not, you're more likely to have a culture that is open to inclusivity and feedback and challenging people's ideas as if it was compared to as it was, if it was flipped. Now, you might have 30% who really love that and 70% who hate it. Now, you could say, we're inclusive, that's our culture, but if 70% aren't inclusive, you, you don't have an inclusive culture. So that isn't to say that culture can't be aspirational because I think culture can be. So we, we go, okay, we want to create a culture that's aspirational, which is we want to have an inclusive culture. Now, right now, we may not have one, but we can work towards that. And so when those 10 people are gathering around to start recruiting, whatever is the kind of average of that group is the kind of pre-existing culture. But as you start to bring more people in, you can actually start to disrupt that and start to shift that. Now, unfortunately, that if, if you don't consider culture in the conversation, we tend to attract people who are like us and we want people around us who are like us. And I think in, in our lives, familiarity makes us comfortable, but difference makes us better. And we typically don't look for difference because we would rather familiarity and comfort. And so um, I have this kind of uh, this thought or this idea that I unpack in the book, which is, is, is culture is about being aligned at the core and inclusive at the edge. And I, I think about it, like if you imagine culture is this kind of me, you and us, it's what are my expectations of you, Pete? And Pete, what are your expectations of me? But then on top of that, what are the organization's expect, expectations of us? And right in the middle of that Venn diagram, I think is this aligned core. And people would say, okay, well, is great culture, is the goal of great culture to remove, like to reduce the Venn down to just one circle so that everybody's aligned. And I think that's not the goal of culture mm -hmm. um, because then what you end up with is this very homogenous, beige, disinteresting kind of um, replication of people. But I think if we're inclusive, if we're aligned at the core, then the big things that we care about um, overlap. But being inclusive at the edges means that we actually value those edges because those edges make us better. So you don't have to agree with everything in the culture to be aligned in the culture. And, and you probably shouldn't, like, because we all are so different, but we mm. can be aligned in the things that really matter for us, which help us to be able to move forward together. 
in the work that you do with organizations, Shane, is part of that alignment at the core about clarity of purpose? There's definitely a sense of purpose that comes into the conversation. Um, for me, it's about clarity of, of expectations. And this is where I, I guess I come back to the rule book conversation is when I've got a certain set of expectations, it's coming out of that rule book. So I have an expectation of the way that we're going to work together, Pete. So for example, my expectation is if, if someone has a problem, they come and talk to me directly. And that's my expectation of you. Now, your expectation of me might be that if you've got a problem with me, go and talk to my manager. Now, those expectations aren't aligned. Hmm. But I think what we can agree on is that we both want an organization where feedback is valued. We, we actually both want that. Even though we go about it differently, we want a culture which is feedback is, is valued. So we need to work out where do we align? Okay, we're on the same page here that we want, we want feedback. But where we need the differences to come in to challenge the way that we think about it is to go, hey, what's the best way that we challenge each other on this team? And maybe it's face-to-face -face or maybe it's with somebody else, but we've got to actually talk about it. And so what we do is we, we clarify the expectations that we have of each other. And then we talk about what that actually means in practicality. So uh, we look at what aligns us and then how does that play out day-to-day -day for us? Hmm. I am... Um... Uh, I'm kind of leading the witness here. Um, the work that you do with leaders, do they fully appreciate the impact they have on culture? That's a good question. Um, in, in, in most part, they appreciate the impact culture has on an organization. Right. So, so when we did our research, uh, it, was, it was close to 99% of people said that culture is integral to an organization and team success. So when we ask people, does culture matter? The answer is yes, absolutely. We ask them, where does it matter? And they say psychological safety and inclusion and engagement and retention um, in creativity and ideas and achievement of goals. They say, yes, it contributes to all of these things. And then we ask questions like, can culture be influenced? And half say, no, they half said, no, it just happens. And that was quite confronting to me. And then we mm. asked them, can you influence the culture of your organization? And most people said, yeah, maybe I can influence my team culture, but probably only half of them say that they can influence anywhere outside of their team's culture. And so there's one sense that people get that culture matters, but I don't really fully understand, think they appreciate just how much they can influence the culture of their team and the broader organization. Mm. I heard someone from CSIRO speak recently and when she was asked, what's the greatest barrier for Australia as a country, which we're recording this in, what's the greatest barrier for Australia as a country to be more innovative? And she gave a wry smile and said, the enemy is us. We're our own worst enemy. And I wonder how often you find that in the teams and the organizations that you deal with, that the enemy is us. Yeah. The enemy is us. I think in the, in the context of the teams that I work with, I think it's, it's the, it's the lack of intentionality about certain things cause us to causes us to live unaware of certain things. So when we're, when we're not intentional about the culture of our team, we don't live aware of the culture of our team. We do things because we kind of just interpret um, there's a really great quote by, by Tori Leto and basically says that what's not communicated is felt. 
what's felt is interpreted and what's interpreted as often inaccurate. And so one of the challenges we have is, you know, when I talk to people about culture, they go, oh, we've got a really good team culture, but we've never done anything intentionally about our culture. And the truth is you can actually create a really great team culture just by having a great average. And you, you've got really good people who bring a certain way of doing things that actually align and work really well together. So you can create culture unintentionally, um, but you could also create really toxic culture unintentionally. And so the same people that can help build a really, really great culture could also <laughs> create a really healthy, a really unhealthy culture. And yeah. so we can be our own worst enemy in the whole approach to culture. Um, but I think the key word for me is intentionality and awareness is, is are we intentional with the culture we're creating and are we living more aware of, of how that's being shaped? I'm glad you mentioned the intentionality one, cause I want to pick up on that. A lot of the conversations I'm having with the clients I work with, everyone is smashed on time. Mm -hmm. Everyone's got too much on their plate. Everyone's got dozens and dozens of priorities, and yet everyone's talking about growth. So when I ask them a question like, so how do you intend to grow intentionally? They don't really answer the question. <laughs> they don't really know what in doing something intentionally means, because I haven't got the time to do that. So if you were advising someone about intentionality, are there any top pocket tips, you know, simple things that they could do to be more intentional about culture or leadership or, or any practices that you think would be valuable? Mm. I, when I, when I wrote my first book, lead the room, we I talk about this idea that um, leadership is a, is a ground up process, not a top down process. And I use the example of this mango tree that we had growing up. And, and I, I like the metaphor of a tree, because I think when you think about growth, it, it's a really nice kind of metaphor for bringing it together. I think growth is a process from health to growth to results. And we often get that back to front, we often try to get results. And by driving growth, and then our health suffers as a result of that. And I think you know, when it comes to like actual, you know, put it in a leadership context, we go, hey, we've got to achieve these certain results. And so what do we do? We get really demanding of people towards growth. And as a result of that, the health of our team or the culture of our team really suffers. Whereas I've found that more often when you get the health of your team, right, the health of your leadership, the health of the people, they're in a really good place. And so they grow. And when they grow, they produce results. And so for me, it's always like, Get the process the right way around and so i always ask two things number one what are the things that are going to create um health for you as a leader mm -hmm. uh, what are the things that you need to be doing and i think like across the the areas I, I look at kind of four big ones so as a leader i'm always asking myself these four areas number one um what what's the place where i rest like what's what does rest look like for me so example you know getting eight hours of sleep a night, not staying up all night and being in a really horrible place when you show up to work the next day. Mm. Um, what does it look like to switch off on the weekends? Um, for me, it's about the people that I do leadership with. It's around community. So what are the people that I am uh, in community with that are, who are helping make me better and that are also supporting me? Because leadership is, is hard. Like it's got lots of highs and lows and we need people around us for that. Mm. Um, it's around, for me, a place of learning like personal learning. So where's the space that I have where I'm inputting into me as the leader, uh, whether it's reading, whether it's, you know, 
podcasts, whatever it is, like what's the space of learning for you? Um, and then the last thing is like, what's the thing that lights me up? You know, what's the thing that just fills my energy? So it could just be going and going for a walk on the beach, getting in nature, going for a run. What's the thing that lights me up? So when I get those things right at a personal level as a, as a leader, I'm growing. And when I'm growing, I'm producing results. So those would be the kind of quick tips for me. And look, probably a lifetime to learn them, right? Yeah. Usually learn them from getting it wrong so often. Yeah. And I think that's, look, that's really practical, Shane. I think rest, community, learning, and energy. If we put our attention on those often intangibles, often, oh, I haven't got the time. Well, usually our body or our community will make the time for us. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I often think about it as a metaphorical. I always go like, it's a bed, a table, a chair and a lamp for me. I'm like, the bed is rest. The table is community. The chair is like thinking, learning and growing. And the lamp is the thing that lights me up. And I always just kind of like, it's, it's a really simple metaphor, but I imagine like a room that's furnished with those things. And I go, okay, if I'm looking at the room right now, what's missing? I'm like, am I living in a room with no bed? Or am I living in a room with no lamp? And I'm living in a room with no chair or a table. Like, what's the thing that's missing from right now? And how do I get that back? I think that's a beautiful metaphor, Shane. And with your permission, I might steal that with pride. Yeah, of course. Please do. And I might just pause there just to maybe bring our conversation to a close, given the time. And um, I'm going to ask you, three or four quick fire questions, if I may, just to kind of round us off. But first of all, thank you for sharing some insights. Um, please give us the show notes about your current book and the one you've got coming out. We'll put that in uh, for those people that are interested. I certainly am. Um, a couple of quick fire questions then. What's a, what's a rule that you live by? Oh, great question. <laughs> um, for me, the, probably one of the biggest ones that I, the rules that I live by is that I always want to be a bigger champion of people's future than I am a critic of their past. Nice. What's a rule that you like to break? <laughs> um, oh my gosh, almost anything creatively. <laughs> if, I can, <laughs> if I can find something that just pushes the boundaries of creativity and it gets outside of a particular rule of creativity, I'm all for that. Last movie you cried at? Ooh. Last movie I watched is going to be a, a, a bigger <laughs> question. Last movie I cried at? I honestly can't remember. I can't remember the last one I cried in. Last movie you laughed at? Um, oh, good question. I mean, I, I watch TV series and, and Brooklyn Nine-Nine is a TV series that I watch and I just, I laugh at it every single day. And then final question, what's one of the books that's changed your life? Oh, there's a lot. One of the books that I, I love um, is actually The Moment of Lift by Melinda Gates. Mm -hmm. and, and it changed my life in a good way because it just talks about some of the, the real challenges that women around the world face. And as a self-confessed, very um, white, privileged male, uh, it was a real um, benefit to my um, outlook on life to be more aware of kind of some of the global issues for women. Mm. Jane, thank you, first of all, for your time. Secondly, your vulnerability. And thirdly, as we talked pre this, um, I, I do this because I enjoy the conversations and I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, I've also got some quite significant insights of it. So really appreciate that, Shane. 
It's such a privilege to be able to talk to you anytime. Thank you, sir.